This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies and the Centre for Poetry and Poetics at Durham University. It was recorded in 2016 in St Chad's College Chapel. 200 years after the birth of Charlotte Bronte, we celebrated the remarkable legacy of the three Bronte sisters in this series of readings from works by them and by later authors and artists inspired by them. The three readers are Professor Michael O'Neill, Dr Jennifer Terry and Dr Sarah Wooten. One of the readings is reproduced courtesy of Jade Montserrat. Dr Sarah Wooten introduces the talk. Well, welcome to this event which marks International Women's Day. We're also here to celebrate the bicentenary of the birth of Charlotte Bronte. She was born in 1816 and she died in 1855 in Haworth. And she was just short of her 39th birthday. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with her first published novel, Jane Eyre which was published on the 16th of October, 1847. And it was hailed as the best novel of the season by George Henry Lewis, who became the partner of George Eliot. And it's now, in fact, regarded as a seminal moment in the history of the novel. And this is partly because of the psychological depths of the novel. It's also because of a seeming intimacy, I think, established between the narrator and the reader. It's also pioneering because that narrator, Jane Eyre, who cries out against the inequalities of her society and demands to be loved in an uncaring society, is significantly a woman. And of course, Charlotte Bronte wrote a number of other novels as well. And these culminate in Villette. And I'm going to give a reading at the close from Villette. And Charlotte Bronte's writings developed alongside those of her sisters, Emily and Anne Bronte. And we'll also be hearing some of their works this evening. Together, these three sisters wove a web in childhood to borrow a phrase from Charlotte Bronte's poem of that name. And this web outlasted them all. Their work, the place that they lived, so the Bronte Parsonage, and of course the landscape that surrounds the Parsonage, the North Yorkshire Moors, spawned a myth so powerful, so influential as to be unique in English literature. So this evening we're going to hear tonight extracts from the poetry and prose of these three sisters. And we're also going to hear from a few of the artists who've been inspired by the Brontes. I'm going to start with Lockwood. He's the narrator of uh, one of the uh, unreliable narrators, as we used to call them. They're probably called limited focalizers or something like that uh, at the moment. But, um, But the extraordinary thing about the passage I'm going to read is that even though... In a sense, Lockwood can't get the measure of what's going on in in Wuthering Heights. Uh, He and we are very much together. This is in Chapter 3 of Wuthering Heights. This copy my mother gave me years ago. And when I first read it, I don't think I'd ever read anything quite so terrifying as this dream. And it now seems to be the very embodiment of the uncanny. Lockwood's just had a dream. He he, He wakes up and he has another one. This time I remembered I was lying in the oak closet and I heard distinctly the gusty wind and the driving of the snow. I heard also the fir bough repeat its teasing sound and ascribed it to the right cause, but it annoyed me so much that I resolved to silence it if possible and I thought I rose and endeavoured to unhasp the casement. The hook was soldered into the staple a circumstance observed by me when awake, but forgotten. I must stop it nevertheless, I muttered, knocking my knuckles through the glass and stretching an arm out to seize the importunate branch, instead of which my fingers closed on the fingers of a little ice-cold hand. The intense horror of nightmare came over me, 
I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it, and a most melancholy voice sobbed, Let me in, let me in. Who are you? I asked, struggling, meanwhile to disengage myself. Catherine Linton, it replied shiveringly. Why did I think of Linton? I had read Earnshaw twenty times for Linton. And come home. I'd lost my way on the moor. As it spoke, I discerned obscurely a child's face looking through the window. Terror made me cruel, and finding it useless to attempt shaking the creature off, I pulled its wrist onto the broken pane and rubbed it to and fro till the blood ran down and soaked the bedclothes. Still it wailed, let me in, and maintained its tenacious gripe, almost maddening me with fear. How can I, I said at length, let me go, if you want me to let you in. The fingers relaxed. I snatched mine through the hole, hurriedly piled the books up in a pyramid against it, and stopped my ears to exclude the lamentable prayer. I seemed to keep them closed above a quarter of an hour, yet the instant I listened again, there was the doleful cry moaning on. Begone, I shouted. I'll never let you in, not if you beg for twenty years. It is twenty years, mourned the voice. Twenty years. I've been away for twenty years. Thereat began a feeble scratching outside, and the pile of books moved as if thrust forward. I tried to jump up, but could not stir a limb, and so yelled aloud in a frenzy of fright. To my confusion, I discovered the yell was not ideal. And I'll move now to a poem. This is a poem that uh, was published in the 1846 collection of poems by the Three Sisters, and uh, it, it originates as a sort of spin-off from Gondel saga, and there's a the, the very interesting side of, of Emily Bronte's poetry that she seems to, there's a sort of narrative germ in her poems, and then there's a, this kind of lyrical move out of that. The, the poem, Stephen's talking about the sort of tensions in Bronte between passion and control, and this one is very illustrative of that tension, and also of different attitudes to memory. The poem's call remembrance is drawn back to remember, yet to remember is the source of a, a kind of anguish that the, the speaker wishes to avoid. It's famous for its extraordinary rhythm, uh, which was described by uh, C. D. Lewis as the slowest rhythm in English poetry. And he points out there are three things about the rhythm. It's normally written in iambic pentameters, but it has a caesura. Most of the lines have a caesura after the fourth syllable. And many of the lines start with a strong stress. And the first and third lines of each quatrain have a feminine rhyme. And the effect is to have this sense of something beautifully orchestrated and full of tugs and pulls and contrapuntal feeling. Remembrance. Cold in the earth and the deep snow piled above thee, far, far removed, cold in the dreary grave. Have I forgot my only love to love thee, severed at last by time's all-severing wave? Now, when alone, do my thoughts no longer hover over the mountains on that northern shore, resting their wings where heath and fern leaves cover thy noble heart for ever, evermore? Cold in the earth, and fifteen wild Decembers from those brown hills have melted into spring. Faithful indeed is the spirit that remembers after such years of change and suffering. Sweet love of youth, forgive if I forget thee, while the world's tide is bearing me along. Other desires and other hopes beset me, Hopes which obscure, but cannot do thee wrong. No later light has lightened up my heaven, so that no second morn has ever shone for me. All my life's bliss from thy dear life was given, 
all my life's bliss is in the grave with thee. But when the days of golden dreams had perished, and even despair was powerless to destroy, then did I learn how existence could be cherished, strengthened and fed without the aid of joy. Then did I check the tears of useless passion, weaned my young soul from yearning after thine, sternly denied its burning wish to hasten down to that tomb already more than mine. And even yet I dare not let it languish, dare not indulge in memory's rapturous pain, once drinking deep of that divinest anguish. How could I seek the empty world again? And back to Wuthering Heights. And uh, this is uh, another of these moments where we have our unreliable narrator. This is Nellie Dean uh, telling us of a conversation with uh, Catherine Earnshaw. And whether she should be Catherine Linton is what they're talking about. And this is a moment that I think, dare I say it, shows the influence of Shelley. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, a lot of people have written on the connection between uh, a poem by Shelley, a rapturous love poem called Epicycidian, where he talks about wanting almost to move beyond relationship with someone that he loves and achieve a sort of complete identity with them. Uh, one critic, perhaps sentimentally, talks about the fact that Emily Bronte would have been rather struck by the fact that the woman that Shelley addresses in Epicycidian is called Emily. I just throw that out, but it's forget it immediately, I think is probably the best advice with that one. Catherine has been trying to tell her, tell Nellie a dream, and, and Nellie doesn't want to hear it. So Catherine says, all right. She starts again. I tell you, I won't hearken to your dreams, Miss Catherine. I'll go to bed, I interrupted again. She laughed and held me down, for I made a motion to leave my chair. This is nothing, cried she. I was only going to say that heaven did not seem to be my home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. And the angels were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath on the top of Wuthering Heights, where I woke, sobbing for joy. That will do to explain my secret as well as the other. I've no more business to marry Edgar Linton than I have to be in heaven. And if the wicked man in there had not brought Heathcliff so low, I shouldn't have thought of it. It would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now, so he shall never know how I love him. And that's not because he's handsome, Nelly, but it's because he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And Linton's is as different as a moonbeam from lightning or frost from fire. Ere this speech ended, I became sensible of Heathcliff's presence. Having noticed a slight movement, I turned my head and saw him rise from the bench and steal out noiselessly. He had listened till he heard Catherine say it would degrade her to marry him, and then he stayed to hear no further. My companion, sitting on the ground, was prevented by the back of the settle from remarking his presence or departure, but I started and bade her hush. Why? she asked, gazing nervously around. Joseph is here, I answered, catching opportunely the roll of his cartwheels up the road and Heathcliff will come in with him. I'm not sure whether he were not at the door this moment. Oh, you couldn't overhear me at the door, said she. Give me Hareton while you get the supper, and when it is ready, ask me to sup with you. I want to cheat my uncomfortable conscience and be convinced that Heathcliff has no notion of these things. He is not, has he? He does not know what being in love is. I see no reason why he should not know as well as you, I returned. And if you are his choice, he'll be the most unfortunate creature that ever was born. As soon as you become Mrs. Linton, he loses friend and love and all. Have you considered how you'll bear the separation and how he'll bear to be quite deserted in the world? Because, Miss Catherine, he quite deserted, we separated, she exclaimed with an accent of indignation. Who is to separate us, pray? They'll meet the fate of Milo. Not as long as I live, Ellen, for no mortal creature... Every Linton on the face of the earth might melt into nothing before I could consent to forsake Heathcliff. Oh, that's not what I intend. That's not what I mean. I shouldn't be Mrs. Linton with such a price demanded. He'll be as much to me as he's been all his lifetime. 
Edgar must shake off his antipathy and tolerate him at least. He will when he learns my true feelings towards him. Nelly, I see now, you think me a selfish wretch. But did it never strike you that if Heathcliff and I married, we should be beggars? Whereas, if I marry Linton, I can aid Heathcliff to rise and place him out of my brother's power. With your husband's money, Miss Catherine, I asked, you'll find him not so pliable as you calculate upon, and though I'm hardly a judge, I think that's the worst motive you've given yet for being the wife of young Linton. It is not, retorted she, it is the best. The others were the satisfaction of my whim, and for Edgar's sake too, to satisfy him. This is for the sake of one who comprehends in his person my feelings to Edgar and myself. I cannot express it. But surely you and everybody have a notion that there is or should be an existence of yours beyond you. What would the use of my creation if I were entirely contained here? My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My great thought in living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still, be, should still continue to be. And if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. I should not seem a part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Nelly, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure, any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of our separation again. It is impracticable and... She paused and hid her face in the folds of my gown, but I jerked it forcibly away. I was out of patience with her folly. If I can make any sense of your nonsense, miss, I said, it only goes to convince me that you are ignorant of the duties you undertake in marrying, or else that you are a wicked, unprincipled girl. But trouble me with no more secrets. I'll not promise to keep them. I, lo I love that sort of interplay between that intense visionary quality and then Nellie's uh, rebuke to Catherine. Now I'll finish with a, a poem that might one might think it's almost addressed to a sort of, if not a Heathcliff figure, then not quite a demon lover. Certainly, maybe somebody who qualifies as a kind of male muse in Emily Bronte's work. This is another poem that started life as a, a, a kind of gondol poem and it was published in 1846. I won't read the whole of it. The, the scenario, of course, as you'll know, is that there's somebody kept captive in a prison and a very unsympathetic, at this stage, narrator goes to visit her to, to mock her sufferings and she tells him of a nightly visitant she has. And she also describes what has been called a mystical vision or has been described as the loss of self that is experienced in poetic creativity. And this is a, she uses a, a, a long line in this poem with, with, with great skill. About her lips there played a smile of almost scorn. My friend, she gently said, you have not heard me mourn. When you my kindred's lives, my lost life, can restore, then may I weep and sue, but never friend before. Still, let my tyrants know, I am not doomed to wear year after year in gloom and desolate despair. A messenger of hope comes every night to me and offers for short life eternal liberty. He comes with western winds, with evening's wandering airs, with that clear dusk of heaven that brings the thickest stars. Winds take a pensive tone, and stars a tender fire, and visions rise and change that kill me with desire. 
Desire for nothing known in my maturer years, When joy grew mad with awe, accounting future tears, When, if my spirit's sky was full of flashes warm, I knew not whence they came, from sun or thunderstorm. But first, a hush of peace, a soundless calm descends. The struggle of distress and fierce impatience ends. Mute music soothes my breast, unuttered harmony that I could never dream till earth was lost to me. Then dawns the invisible, the unseen its truth reveals. My outward sense is gone, my inward essence feels. Its wings are almost free, its home, its harbour found, measuring the gulf, it stoops and dares the final bound. Oh, dreadful is the check, intense the agony, when the ear begins to hear and the eye begins to see, when the pulse begins to throb, the brain to think again, the soul to feel the flesh, and the flesh to feel the chain. Yet I would lose no sting, would wish no torture less. The more that anguish racks, the earlier it will bless. And robed in fires of hell, or bright with heavenly shine, if it but herald death, the vision is divine. She ceased to speak, and we, unanswering, turned to go. We had no further power to work the captive woe. Her cheek, her gleaming eye, declared that man had given a sentence unapproved and overruled by heaven. Thanks very much. In preparation for this evening, um, over the weekend I completed the BBC website quiz, How Jane Eyre Are You? <laughs> I wondered about sending it to my colleagues, Michael and Sarah, um, but I thought I'd let them follow up after the reading and you might wish to do so. Um, shockingly, I scored only 10 out of 18. Apparently this was down to a lack of selflessness. Um, <laughs> But the, the website assured me, don't worry, selflessness is overrated these days. So um, on that note, I'll, um, I'll move on from, from myself and Jane Eyre. Um, I work at the modern end of literary studies. Um, I've, I focus a lot on black diaspora writing and culture. And in some senses, I may not seem an obvious choice for, for this evening's reading. But the way in which the Bronte sisters proved a sort of starting point, um, sometimes an inspiration, sometimes something to write back to, has filtered down through lots of different literatures, including uh, various post-colonial literatures. And I think that's down to the way they write about place and belonging or unbelonging, their writing of compelling female protagonists, and their shaping of complex outsider figures. And that's proved resonant or provocative for many more recent writers and artists. I'm going to come back to Jean Rhys in a moment. Um, as some of you may know, a white Creole writer from the Caribbean, in the mid-20th century, Rhys was prompted to write back to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, famously developing the story of the othered figure of Bertha Mason and bringing the colonial setting of Jamaica and Dominica to the fore. I want to start, though, with the present-day work of an emerging black British artist. Um, Jade Montserrat is a performance artist. She's an emerging artist just starting to make a name for herself. Pete is a short film by Jade that was first screened at a, a symposium at the University of Central Lancashire in 2015. The symposium was called Lost Children, the Black Atlantic and Northern Britain, and um, was run in association with the Bronte Parsonage mentioned earlier. In a loose response to Heathcliff as an outsider in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, and more intimately and physically as a response to the call of the Moors and the power of local landscapes in that novel, Montserrat crafts a film about the remote Yorkshire location in which she grew up. In the text that accompanies the film, 
Jade explains. Peat bog, made with filmmakers Webb Ellis, is an attempt to combine an understanding of the nurturing landscape with the terrain recalled in Wuthering Heights. The performances were acts of remembrance generated by the landscape and by personal histories. Heathcliff, representative of the dispossessed, and I are aliens dropped into this ancient landscape. Appearances suggest we were not meant to be here. Alienation is magnified by a landscape scarred by borders, borders that are testimony to territorial ownership. I've spent all my life in Highdales, two miles off the beaten track from a village called Hackness, nine miles west of Scarborough Town, in a house with generated electricity, its own spring, gas lights, not a neighbour in sight. I came to live here through my mother's marriage to a local solicitor and farmer whose family had bought the land without knowing the properties on it even existed. The land was used by him and his brother, an international arms dealer, as a playground, and the land is still used as a chute today. Following divorce, my mother retained the house and maintains it as her home. It is an island amidst territory. The landscape, well-trod and listened to, is ancient and demands a giving way to instinct and a surrender to its pulse, demanding not recording what I think I know, but what can be seen and felt. The deepest peat bog deposits worked on in the vicinity were peat bog moor on the Hackness estate near the Falcon Inn off the Scarborough to Whitby Road. Here, all the tenants of the estate had rights of tubery. At the present day, the bog, situated in the midst of trees planted by the Forestry Commission, is not as deep as it was and is confined to one acre. Peat bogs, the material of preservation, warmth and growth, the past layered in its mass and beginnings visible on its surface. Jade also writes, Heathkith and I fall under a net of unbelonging, although fully of this landscape. Watching the film, we're drawn into Jade's engagement with place, her restless movement through it, its sounds and shades, and her imprinting of her presence into it. The film quite poetically reaches towards the inhospitable and the hospitable, the agitated and the free. For the second part of my contribution, I'd like to turn to a pairing of passages from Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and Jean Rees's Wide Sargasso Sea. My reading from Jane Eyre comes from the point in chapter 10 when Jane seeks a wider world, having been pupil, then teacher at Lowood, a school for poor and orphaned girls. One trigger for her resolve to make her own way is the marriage and departure of her mentor and friend, Miss Temple. From the day she left, I was no longer the same. With her was gone every settled feeling, every association that had made Lowood in some degree a home to me. I had imbibed from her something of her nature and much of her habit. More harmonious thoughts, what seemed better regulated feeling, had become the inmates of my mind. I had given in allegiance to duty and order. I was quiet. I believed I was content. To the eyes of others, usually even to my own, I appeared a disciplined and subdued character. But destiny, in the shape of the Reverend Mr Naismith, came between me and Miss Temple. I saw her in her travelling dress step into a post-chase shortly after the marriage ceremony. I watched the chase mount the hill and disappear beyond its brow, and then retired to my own room, and there spent in solitude the greater part of the half-holiday granted in honour of the occasion. I walked about the chamber most of the time. I imagined myself only to be regretting my loss and thinking how to repair it. But when my reflections were concluded, and I looked up and found that the afternoon was gone, an evening far advanced, another discovery dawned on me. Namely, that in the interval, I had undergone a transforming process. That my mind had put off all that 
all it had borrowed of Miss Temple, or rather that she had taken with her the serene atmosphere I had been breathing in her vicinity, and that now I was left in my natural element and beginning to feel the stirring of old emotion. It did not seem as if a prop were withdrawn, but rather as if a motive had gone. It was not the power to be tranquil which had failed me, but the reason for tranquillity was no more. My world had for some years been in Lowood. My experience had been of its rules and systems. Now I remembered that the real world was wide and a varied field of hopes and fears, of sensations and excitements, awaited those who had courage to go forth into its expanse to seek real knowledge of life amidst its perils. I went to my window, opened it and looked out. There were the two wings of the building, there, there was the garden, there were the skirts of Lowood, there was the hilly horizon. My eye passed all other objects to rest on those most remote, the blue peak. It was those I longed to surmount. All within their boundary of rock and heath seemed prison ground, exile limits. I traced the white road winding round the sorry, I traced the white road winding round the base of one mountain and vanishing in a gorge between two. How I longed to follow it further. I recalled the time when I travelled that very road in a coach. I remembered descending the hill at twilight. An age, seemed, an age seemed to have elapsed since that day which brought me first to Lowood, and I had never quitted it since. My vacations had all been spent at school. Mrs Reed had never sent for me to Gateshead. Neither she nor any of her family had ever been to visit me. I had had no communication by letter or message with the outer world. School rules, school duties, school habits and notions and voices and faces and phrases and costumes and preferences and antipathies. Such was what I knew of existence. And now I felt that it was not enough. I tired of the routine of eight years in one afternoon. So this passage contributes a lot to our sense of Jane as an independent-spirited heroine. Her own voice describes a struggle between duty, order, quietness, being content, and being unsettled, the stirring of old emotion, a very being that's linked to the opposite of tranquility. Her sense of freedom and the wide, real world that she desires and has yet to enter into is conveyed spatially. From the routines and confinement of Lowood, she opens her window and speculates on her life out beyond the remote blue peaks on the horizon. Although the impoverished and female Jane fixes on a new kind of servitude, just in the phrases that, that follow where I ended my reading, she decides on employment as a governess rather than a greater form of liberty. And despite her phrase, a new kind of servitude, this passage opens a window on the wider life of unknown possibility and change. One other thing to note regarding um, the Jane Eyre passage is Jane's self-alignment with Miss Temple. Bronte begins to bring in the novel's pattern of doubling, of doubled figures, and that's something that Rhys later further develops. Jane breaks from Miss Temple's way here, but even in the marriage mentioned between Miss Temple and a reverend, Miss Temple's immediate remove to a distant country, we find an anticipation of St. John Rivers' request of Jane to join him in his foreign missionary work later in the novel. In White Sargasso Sea, as Rhys develops the story of Antoinette Cosway, that's the figure of Bertha Mason from Jane Eyre, we also find enclosure and the outside world beyond being used to figure the life of women, and in particular women seeking liberty in circumstances determined by men and determined by relations to men. My second passage comes from late in Rhys's novel, when Antoinette is kept hidden and imprisoned at Thornfield, with only her keeper, Grace Poole, for company. 
There is one window high up. You cannot see out of it. My bed had doors, but they've been taken away. There is not much else in the room. Her bed, a black press, the table in the middle, and two black chairs carved with fruit and flowers. They have high backs and no arms. The dressing room is very small. The room next to this one is hung with tapestry. Looking at the tapestry one day, I recognised my mother, dressed in an evening gown, but with bare feet. She looked away from me, over my head, just as she used to. I wouldn't tell Grace this. Her name oughtn't to be Grace. Names matter, like when he wouldn't call me Antoinette, and I saw Antoinette drifting out of the window with her scents, her pretty clothes and her looking glass. There is no looking glass here, and I don't know what I am like now. I remember watching myself brush my hair and how my eyes looked back at me. The girl I saw was myself, yet not quite myself. Long ago, when I was a child and very lonely, I tried to kiss her, but the glass was between us, hard, cold, and misted over with my breath. Now they have taken everything away. What am I doing in this place, and who am I? The door to the tapestry room is kept locked. It leads, I know, into a passage. That is where Grace stands and talks to another woman whom I have never seen. Her name is Leah. But I, I listen, but I cannot understand what they say. So there is still the sound of whispering that I've heard all my life, but these are different voices. When night comes and she has had several drinks and sleeps, it is easy to take the keys. I know now where she keeps them. Then I open the door and walk into their world. It is, as I always knew, made of cardboard. I've seen it before somewhere, this cardboard world, where everything is coloured brown or dark red or yellow that has no light in it. As I walk along the passages, I wish I could see what is behind the cardboard. They tell me I'm in England, but I don't believe them. We lost our way to England. And then the end of that paragraph finishes. This cardboard house where I walk at night is not England. We've got again a first-person voice, as in Jane Eyre. And here we've got a description of a small interior space that's become Antoinette's world. She recalls a loss of self on being renamed by Rochester and finds an image for the loss by saying she saw herself drift out of the window. Without a mirror, Antoinette no longer knows what she is like. She lacks an image for herself. In this sense, the mirror's glass is another kind of lost window. When she does manage to leave her prison, it's only to find an insubstantial cardboard world, not a real world she can inhabit or understand. This captures her displacement from her Caribbean home, but also her ongoing attempts to break through, to get beyond the cardboard and the boundaries of her narrowed existence. In this striving, Rhys develops what begins as a doubling of Bertha and Jane in Bronte's novel. But she rewrites Bertha as far more than a monstrous secret, opening up her interior view and sense of place. I want to finish with a shorter extract, again from Antoinette's perspective. And it comes just a couple of pages later than the first. And in this extract, we have another symbol of Antoinette's identity, one that can overcome the loss of a mirror and a name and open up a vivid home to replace the cardboard world. It prefigures the novel ending and it offers another kind of window out. She looked at me and said, I don't believe you know how long you've been here, you poor creature. On the contrary, I said, only I know how long I've been here. Nights and days, and days and nights, hundreds of them slipping through my fingers. But that does not matter. Time has no meaning. But something you can touch and hold, like my red dress, that has a meaning. Where is it? 
She jerked her head towards the press, and the corners of her mouth turned down. As soon as I turned the key, I saw it hanging, the colour of fire and sunset, the colour of flamboyant flowers. If you're buried under a flamboyant tree, I said, your soul is lifted up when it flowers. Everyone wants that. She shook her head, but she did not move or touch me. The scent that came from the dress was very faint at first, then it grew stronger. The smell of vetiver and frangipani, of cinnamon and dust and lime trees when they are flowering, the smell of the sun and the smell of the rain. I want to come back to another writer like Jean Rhys who's inspired by the Brontes in the 1960s so just over a century after their writing and this is a poem by Sylvia Plath and it was circling back again onto Wuthering Heights and this was my Wuthering Heights was my first introduction to the Brontes when my sister gave me a copy of the novel and said, uh, this is all you need to know about relationships and boys. Um, I was about 11 at the time, and I think I was probably more confused than anything else. But Sylvia Plath has a far more productive uh, and interesting response to uh, Wuthering Heights. So this poem takes the title of Emily Bronte's novel and it was published in 1961 and it's part of a series of poems that Plath writes with Ted Hughes. They're staying near to Topwithens which is quite close to where um, Ted Hughes grew up and they have quite differing responses to the bleak gothic isolation of this landscape. They're both rather apprehensive, but they're also inspired by what Plath describes in another poem, Two Views of Withens, as the inaccessible hinterland of Bronte's novel. What I'm really interested in in this poem are these marginal spaces that grow up between the speaker and the lore of this landscape as imaginative burden and as a creative support. And I think this reflects on fears of absence, but also poetic presence in this really fertile ground of literary legacy. But Plath is also acknowledging that while she's this sort of central figure in the landscape, it's also a visited landscape. And as she's struggling to stand her ground as a poet, she also describes the sheep And these are, as we'll see, they're darkly comic. They're also faintly threatening. And I know myself, the first time I went to Top Withens, having been chased by one of these sheep for for my sandwiches, that they they can be faintly threatening, in fact. This is Sylvia Plath, Wuthering Heights. The horizons ring me like faggots, tilted and disparate, and always unstable. Touched by a match, they might warm me, and their fine lines singe the air to orange before the distances they pin evaporate, weighting the pale sky with a solider colour. But they only dissolve and dissolve like a series of promises as I step forward. There is no life higher than the grass tops or the hearts of sheep and the wind pours by like destiny, bending everything in one direction. I can feel it trying to funnel my heat away. If I pay the roots of the heather too close attention, they will invite me to whiten my bones among them. The sheep know where they are, browsing in their dirty wool clouds, grey as the weather. The black slots of their pupils take me in. It is like being mailed into space, a thin, silly message. They stand about in grandmotherly disguise, all wig curls and yellow teeth and hard, marbly bars. I come to wheel ruts, and water limpid as the solitudes that flee through my fingers. 
Hollow doorsteps go from grass to grass. Lintel and sill have unhinged themselves. Of people, the air only remembers a few odd syllables. It rehearses them moaningly. Black stone, black stone. The sky leans on me, me, the one upright among all horizontals. The grass is beating its head distractedly. It is too delicate for a life in such company. Darkness terrifies it. Now, in valleys narrow and black as purses, the house lights gleam like small change. And the description of the heath there, I thought, made a really interesting parallel with the um, clip that we saw that, that Dr Terry showed. And also, I think uh, Plath's poem always takes me back to Lockwood's description of Wuthering Heights itself, and particularly where Lockwood initially describes the house and the landscape around. And he's drawn to what he describes as the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house, and by a range of gaunt thorns all stretching their limbs one way, as if craving arms of the sun. So everything that grows in the landscape is growing thwarted, if you like, it's stunted. So, and I want to move on just briefly to think about one of the, the Bronte sisters, Anne Bronte, who is not often um, discussed, certainly not as much as her uh, two sisters. And she's often thought of as the Cinderella of the parsonage, the youngest sister. And as Elizabeth Langland's uh, literary biography has it, the other one. Now, this has changed somewhat. There's been quite a bit of interest in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, her novel that was published in 1848. And this was seen as a shocking novel. It was also quite a commercial success as well. It went into a second edition that Anne Bronte uh, provided a preface to. And it's a real critique of society, particularly of aristocratic men. And we have this unflinching moral integrity of the protagonist, Helen Huntingdon. And it's considered an early feminist novel. And her earlier novel, Agnes Grey, which was published the year before, focuses on the aspirations and disillusionment of a young governess. Now, both of Anne Bronte's novels have been read as critiques of her sister's works demystifying the gothic romance and iconic heroes of Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. Now, I think her poetry is sadly overlooked. And the poem that I'm going to read to you today is uh, called A Voice from the Dungeon. And this was dated the 6th of October, 1837. So just keep in mind that Anne Bronte is 17 when she writes this poem. And it's written from the perspective of one of the characters from the Gondol saga that Professor O'Neill mentioned earlier. And Gondol is this imaginary world, very detailed imaginary world, that Emily and Anne create together. And unlike Charlotte, who has this moment, very dramatic moment, where she renounces her fantasy saga of um, Angria that she develops with her brother Branwell. Emily and Anne keep on writing episodes of the Gondol saga uh, into their early adult lives. And I think in this poem we can see the influence of Emily in the dungeon motif. This goes back to the, the wonderful poem that uh, Michael read earlier. And we have a female voice here constrained within a cell. And it's also a poem, uh, a curious poem, I think, that's spoken from the imaginative perspective of someone who is dead or dying. Now, this is not necessarily a literal death, but a symbolic incarceration, an isolation from life. She's suffering a living death, 
And of course, she writes this when she's at Roe Head and she is uh, suffering greatly at this time. It's also a poem, I think, that's preoccupied with the innocency of childhood and the experience of adults. The bond, also the disruption of a bond between a mother and her son. And in this, I think we have echoes of the romantic poets, particularly Wordsworth, but also the darker lyricism of Byron, particularly when the speaker destroys their own idyllic dream and the possibilities of the poetic imagination. So, a voice from the dungeon. I'm buried now. I've done with life. I've done with hate, revenge and strife. I've done with joy and hope and love and all the bustling world above. Long have I dwelt forgotten here in pining woe and dull despair. This place of solitude and gloom must be my dungeon and my tomb. No hope, no pleasure can I find. I am grown weary of my mind. Often in balmy sleep I try to gain a rest from misery and in one hour of calm repose, to find a respite from my woes. But dreamless sleep is not for me, and I am still in misery. I dream of liberty, tis true, but then I dream of sorrow too, of blood and guilt and horrid woes, of tortured friends and happy foes. I dream about the world, but then I dream of fiends instead of men, each smiling hope so quickly fades, and such a lurid gloom pervades. That world, that when I wake and see, those dreamy phantoms fade and flee. Even in my dungeon I can smile, and taste of joy a little while. And yet it is not always so. I dreamt a little while ago, that all was as it used to be. A fresh, free wind passed over me. It was a pleasant summer's day, the, the sun shone forth with cheering ray. Methought a little lovely child looked up into my face and smiled. My heart was full, I wept for joy. It was my own, my darling boy. I clasped him to my breast and he kissed me and laughed in childish glee. Just then I heard him whisper sweet, a well-known voice my name repeat. His father stood before my eyes, I gazed at him in mute surprise. I thought he smiled and spoke to me, but still in silent ecstasy. I gazed at him, I could not speak, I uttered one long piercing shriek. Alas, alas, that cursed scream aroused me from my heavenly dream. I looked around in wild despair, I called them, but they were not there. The father and the child are gone, and I must live and die alone. Okay, so to finish up, I want to think about something that has preoccupied me for a long time, which is the beginning and endings of the Brontes novels, particularly those of Charlotte Bronte. I'm sure most of you will know that opening to Jane Eyre, there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. And we think this is going to be something that's negative, but of course the protagonist thinks, this is great, I can stay in my little sequestered bower and I can keep on reading, feeding my creative imagination. And the ending, the, the opening of that final chapter, that wonderful affirmation, reader, I married him. Just a wonderful moment. Um, and of course, what Charlotte Bronte gives us is this incredibly utopian picture of marriage towards um, the end of the novel. So I'm just going to read you a very short passage that I'm sure most of you will be familiar with. So particularly special passage to me. My tale draws to its close one word respecting my experience of married life and one brief glance at the fortunes of those whose names have most frequently recurred in this narrative, and I have done. I have now been married ten years. I know what it is to live entirely for and with what I love best on earth. I hold myself supremely blessed, blessed beyond what language can express. 
because I am my husband's life as fully as he is mine. No woman was ever nearer to her mate than I am, ever more absolutely bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. I know no weariness of my Edward's society, he knows none of mine, any more than we each do of the pulsation of the heart that beats in our separate bosoms. Consequently, we are ever together. To be together is for us to be at once as free as in solitude, as gay as in company. We talk, I believe, all day long. To talk to each other is but a more animated and an audible thinking. All my confidence is bestowed on him. All his confidence is devoted to me. We are precisely suited in character. Perfect concord is the result. But of course, Charlotte Bronte doesn't leave the novel there. And we move to think about St. John Rivers. So not earthly delight, but spiritual delight. And of course, when Jane Eyre is such a success, this creates something of a problem for Charlotte Bronte when she comes to write her subsequent novels. So Shirley, a social novel, which is set at the time of the Luddite riots, and this is published in 1849. And it has the most wonderful opening, which is, to me, very much Charlotte Bronte thinking about how people have possibly misread the ending of Jane Eyre. And she starts the novel by saying, of late years, an abundant shower of curates has fallen upon the north of England. They lie very thick on the hills. But the bit I want to read you, just think about the last passage I read and what she's trying to say here. If you think from this prelude that anything like a romance is preparing for you, reader, you never were more mistaken. Do you anticipate sentiment and poetry and reverie? Do you expect passion and stimulus and melodrama? Calm your expectations. <laughs> Reduce them to a lowly standard. Something real, cool and solid lies before you. Something unromantic as Monday morning. When all who have work wake with the consciousness that they must rise and betake themselves there too. It is not positively affirmed that you shall not have a taste of the exciting, perhaps towards the middle and close of the meal, but it is resolved that the first dish set upon the table shall be one that a Catholic, I even an Anglo-Catholic, might eat on Good Friday and Passion Week. It shall be cold lentils and vinegar without oil. It shall be unleavened bread and bitter herbs and no roast lamb. So rather a, a wry arch opening to Shirley there. And I want to finish up with um, an ending. And this is the ending to Villette, which is the last novel that Charlotte Bronte publishes in 1853, which is often regarded as her masterpiece. George Eliot says, Villette is a still more wonderful book than Jane Eyre. There is something almost preternatural in its power. And Virginia Woolf says it is her finest novel, all her force, and it is the more tremendous for being constricted, goes into the assertion, I love, I hate, I suffer. And what Charlotte Bronte does with Villetti, she returns to the narrative form with which she's had such success in Jane Eyre. So we have again this style of the confessional. But that special bond that we anticipate between the confiding narrator and the reader is far more ambivalent. Lucy Snow, who is our central protagonist, and as her name suggests, she is in everything. She covers everything, just like a blanket of snow. But she is also always in danger of dissolving. So we have something of a transparent medium. Now, 
this sounds like it's negative. And of course, Lucy Snow has often been thought of in negative terms as someone who withholds information from us. She's icy, she's cold. But Charlotte Bronte is thinking about the creative possibilities that arise from evasion. And this is nowhere better illustrated than in the ending of the novel. So this is after Lucy Snow and Monsieur Paul Emmanuel have declared their passion for each other, but Monsieur Emmanuel has to spend three years in the West Indies to oversee a plantation. So again, those post-colonial overtones that, that Dr. Terry was bringing out for us. But before departing, Monsieur Paul arranges and pays for Lucy to live and work independently in her own school. So she becomes a, a schoolmistress and she escapes the intrusive Madame Beck at the boarding school where they meet. And the ambivalence of the ending is described by Bronte as a little puzzle and the cryptic comment that she makes leave sunny imaginations hope is an accommodation to her father's request that she make her hero and heroine marry and live very happily ever after and this is recorded in elizabeth gaskell's life of charlotte bronte which is published in 1857 now upon receiving inquiries as to the fate of monsieur paul this is after the publication of the novel. Charlotte Bronte writes again with this kind of arch irony that we've just seen in Shirley. And she says, with regard to that momentous point, Monsieur Paul's fate, in case anyone in future should request to be enlightened thereon, they may be told that it was designed that every reader should settle the catastrophe for himself, according to the quality of his disposition, the tender or remorseless impulse of his nature. Drowning and matrimony are the fearful alternatives. <laughs> the merciful will, of course, choose the former and milder doom, drown him to put him out of pain. The cruel-hearted will, on the contrary, pitilessly impale him on the second horn of the dilemma, marrying him without ruth or compunction to that person, that, that individual, Lucy Snow. So this is just the final paragraphs of Villette. Monsieur Emmanuel was away three years. Reader, they were the three happiest years of my life. Do you scout the paradox? Listen. And then we'll move on to the last few paragraphs. And now the three years are past. Monsieur Emmanuel's return is fixed. It is autumn. He is to be with me ere the mists of November come. My school flourishes. My house is ready. I have made him a little library filled its shelves with the books he left in my care. I have cultivated out of love for him. I was naturally no florist, the plants he preferred, and some of them are yet in bloom. I thought I loved him when he went away. I love him now in another degree. He is more my own. The sun passes the equinox, the days shorten, the leaves grow sere, but he is coming. Frosts appear at night. November has sent his fogs in advance. The wind takes its autumn moan, but he is coming. The skies hang full and dark. A rack sails from the west. The clouds cast themselves into strange forms, archers and broad radiations. There rise resplendent mornings, glorious, royal, purple as monarch in his state, the heavens are one flame, so wild are they, they rival battle at its thickest, so bloody they shame victory in her pride. I know some signs of the sky, I have noted them ever since childhood. God, watch that sail, oh guard it. The wind shifts to the west, peace, peace, banshee, keening at every window, it will rise, it will swell, it shrieks out long. Wander as I may through the house this night, I cannot lull the blast. The advancing hours make it strong. 
By midnight, all sleepless watchers hear and fear a wild southwest storm. That storm roared frenzied for seven days. It did not cease till the Atlantic was strewn with wrecks. It did not lull till the deeps had gorged their full of sustenance. Not till the destroying angel of tempest had achieved his perfect work would he fold the wings whose waft was thunder, the tremor of whose plumes was storm. Peace be still. Oh, a thousand weepers praying in agony on waiting shores listened for that voice, but it was not uttered, not uttered till when the hush came, some could not feel it, till when the sun returned, his light was night to some. Here pause, pause at once, there is enough said, trouble no quiet, kind heart, Leave sunny imaginations hope. Let it be theirs to conceive the delight of joy, born again fresh out of great terror, the rapture of rescue from peril, the wondrous reprieve from dread, the fruition of return. Let them picture union and a happy succeeding life. Madame Beck prospered all the days of her life. So did Pierre Silas. Madame Volravens fulfilled her 90th year before she died. Farewell. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 